Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. Mine is one of the first words babies learn in every culture. Ownership shapes every minute of every day of our lives. And we think ownership is natural. We think it's obvious and simple, but that's not entirely true. There are hidden rules that determine who gets what and why. Whether you stand at the front of the line or the back, where you live, what you drive, where you park, what you can watch and listen to. Hundreds of times a day, we encounter the rules that decide who gets what. Ownership is always up for grabs if you know the rules. And once we start looking for these choices about ownership, we will see them everywhere. Fights over reclining airline seats, whether we can share HBO passwords, also big issues like climate change and wealth inequality. And all these conflicts are driven by just a few simple hidden ownership rules. And if you're not the one choosing the rules, then someone else is choosing them for you. If we want to understand who owns our life, we need to understand how ownership really works. And my guest today does. Michael Heller is an endowed professor at Columbia Law School and writes and teaches about who gets what. And he is the co-author of the highly anticipated book, Mine, How the Hidden Rules of Ownership Control Our Lives. Ariana Summer and I have passionately dedicated the last 12 years of my life to creating the ultimate human experience mentally, physically, and spiritually based on the most powerful ancient teachings and cutting-edge modern discoveries and technologies. The Superhumanized Podcast is a show committed to sharing what I have learned from the world's leading experts in order to help you achieve your full potential and create your best life ever. Thank you for being on the Superhumanized podcast today, Michael. It's great to have you. It's such a pleasure to be here. Michael, the subtitle of your book is How the Hidden Rules of Ownership Control Our Lives. And to jump right in, what is the single most important lesson you want to impart to your readership? The most important thing to, for your listeners to know is that ownership is always up for grabs. It feels natural. It feels a given. You walk down the street and you see people in line, you get in the back of the line, but you don't realize that how those lines are put together is an ownership design tool that somebody has made and they're making a choice. So if you're not making that choice about how ownership is created, then someone else is making it for you. And I want your listeners to know each one of you can be a more effective advocate for yourself as a parent, as a citizen, as as a consumer, if you understand how these rules really work. Mm-hmm. And the, the subtitle, uh, subtitle of your book says that you speak about the hidden rules of ownership. Please let us know what you mean by that. Explain. Well, I, when I took my kids recently to the, to the park, they were fighting over actually a little sh- toy shovel. One of them said, mine, I'm holding that. And they said, no, it's mine. I had it first. So with that little fight, It just sounds like mine versus mine, kids in a playground. But that's what they were actually doing. They were using two of just six simple rules that everyone uses to claim everything in the world. My daughter was saying, I'm holding on to it. 
possession. Possession is nine-tenths of the law. And my son was saying, I was first, first in time, first come, first served. They were actually engaged in a storytelling battle. And that's not just true for kids on the playground. It's how we fight over the wedge of the airplane seat. It's how we fight over really big issues like who owns your data online. It's the exact same six stories that kids use. These are also the stories that businesses and governments are using to steer you through every part of your life all day long. Hmm. And you actually open your book up with one of the examples you just cited, the fighting for space in an airline. And uh, you're, you spoke about a particular scenario of uh, somebody using a, a knee guard, you know, which blocks right. the in front of you from reclining. And then of course the two people sitting, you know, and sitting uh, in that constellation get into a fight with each other. And you also say that what a lot of people don't realize is that these conflicts are actually <laughs> set up to be by corporations like airlines. Well, so I don't know about you, but I always fly economy class and I get really squished. I mean, maybe you're up front. I would love to be. But when, when you're back in economy, um, you're always trying to figure out like, can you lean back on the person behind you or not? And again, that may not feel like an ownership conflict particularly, but that wedge of space is a very highly engineered decision by the airlines where what they're trying to do is sell that wedge twice. They're selling it to you to lean back and they're selling it to me for my laptop and my knees. And just like the kids in the playground, we each, you and I are both using two of the six very simple stories. You're saying, listen, Michael, you know, the button controls the seat. I can lean back. That wedge of space is attached to my seat. Attachment is one of those six simple stories. And I'm saying, no, 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 Ariana, the, I possess that space. My laptop is there. So there, there it's attachment versus possession. So we're fighting that out. And mostly we just do it by being polite. Same with like nudging your elbows try to be polite to the person next to you. But all of that was set up by the airlines, the real owners, so that they can sell that wedge twice. And so they create those better seats up front that they can charge a lot more for. It's the conflict in the economy that creates the real value for business class seats. Mm, that's fascinating. And I think that's also something, uh, a, a thread that you weave throughout your book, that a, a lot of these conflicts that we are living out in daily life are actually created by somebody else who's really profiting from them. And um, if I understand correctly, that the six stories that you talk about, these six simple stories that we um, base ownership upon, uh, they are constantly in conflict with each other and that this is instrumentalized, especially by big corporations in order to maximize their gains. Well, savvy businesses know these stories. And they use them to get you to do what, what they want. So one way to think about ownership is that it sort of works like a remote control, but it's not the remote control that you hold to control your TV. It's a remote control that businesses and sometimes governments hold to control your life. They use these stories to steer you, to get in line, to push the button on the airplane seat, um, to give them your data when you go online so they can sell it back to you in the form of advertising. So pretty much... All day long, hundreds of times a day, every minute, you're engaged in ownership conflicts where usually somebody else is steering you around and you don't even see right. that this is happening to you. 
Right. And there's a great quote of yours that I'd, uh, I'd like to read. Um, I think you said, uh, the place where freedom is born and dies is around ownership, around our access to resources. When governments want to destroy freedom, what they often do first is limit people's ability to own things. There is really nothing more fundamental to freedom than what you can make yours. So how can we make things ours and which rules do we need to know and use to do so? Well, the first step to making things ours is to understand that um, we actually have a say in this. Like we have, we have the power to make these rules. They don't, they're not, they don't come from on high. They aren't natural. They aren't fixed. They're very much up for grabs in every moment. It's the same thing with um, you know, the, the wedge of space where there's these two different stories. Once you see that that conflict is engineered by the airlines, you can begin to protest against it. You can say, well, it shouldn't be that way. And it's the same with your, when, when you go online and for example, um, click around, you, you, you go to uh, fly to Chicago for the weekend. And then for the next week, everywhere you go online, you, you see these ads following you around. So here's some Chicago hotel. Like, how do they know that? And they know that because they are attaching trackers to uh, your clickstream, to your likes and your looks to everywhere that you visit. They're simply claiming ownership. It's not over the wedge of space on the airline seat. They're claiming ownership over um, your online life. They're leaning their digital trackers into your virtual lab. That's also an ownership conflict. And the same thing there, once you know that they're making an ownership claim, they're saying your data is attached to their trackers, you can say, no, no, no. That's my most intimate data. It's not just, it's where you, it's how you vote. It's the drugs you take. It's what you care about. All of that is captured by this and you can push back. So tell us, tell us about this because, you know, who, this is super important. Who owns our click stream, our browsing data? Um, you know, it's, it's everything we look at, we like, we consume. And like you said, it's the medications. We take the most intimate details of our lives. And this data is worth billions of dollars. So, but how can we push back? How can we keep these tech giants out of our private lives? What are effective methods? Well, they, they're, they're very hard to do individually. This is exactly the area where having sort of engaged activism and um, citizenry actually makes a real difference. So for example, in the European Union, they recently passed a law that gives you privacy from these trackers. Mm -hmm. Some states actually, Ariana, where you are in California is one of the only American states that has said, you, Ariana, should be protected against this data tracking. And you now have, uh, um, the tech companies are beginning to develop tools in California to protect you. Now I'm, in, I'm calling in from New York. I have no protection. Mm -hmm. So each of us individually can slowly, tediously go through the websites and do data blockers. There are apps that can help us block um, the tracking, but it's very hard to do individually. Um, and it's the sort of thing where uh, we really need something as the common good to have laws like California recently passed to protect the rest of us. Superhumanize. And where we must become active and must be aware and use the, you know, the people power and, and, and actually mobilize and link arms, even if it's digitally with others to do so. Uh, you know, the click stream is one thing. In your, in your book, you also bring up something really, really interesting. And that's, uh, you call it the wild west of genetic data. And the real reason 23andMe and Com and other companies charge so little money for our genetic data. Now, I, I personally, I'm a biohacker. I like to know what's going on in my body. So I have done genetic testing. I did have the, um, 
uh, I did do it safely, quote, and by not using my real name, not using my real email, not using my normal credit cards and such. Yet still, the data is out there with some companies. And I guess by cross-referencing, you're not really private. But so, you know, what is the what is the situation there right now? Because in a fictional dystopian world, the company or the companies that hold the key to our most important data, our genetic code would be the mother of all villains. So what is the situation right now? And what do we need to keep in mind as consumers who are interested in these kinds of technological advancements? Well, the, the, the technology is so promising. It's so interesting. It's so important to us to know like where we come from. It's not just where we come from. Right. So when you when you um, when you swab in your cheek, they can tell a lot about you, not just how long you're going to live, but about your health status um, and where you're from. So many things about you are available now through this data. Um, and what's amazing, people don't realize the reason that it's possible to get this data so cheap is that you're not really the consumer for the 23andMe or Ancestry.com. You're actually the product. Mm -hmm. So even though you try to hide your identity like you did. And what you did is actually uh, is a very powerful way to try to hide it, but they can still find you. Yes. Most, most people in this country can now be individually identified by these big uh, gene data companies. Um, even if you don't send in a sample, they can, you can be identified because other family members have, um, and you're close enough related, close enough relation to them that they can actually find you and they can affect your insurance rates potentially um, or um, uh, health insurance health insurance is more complicated, but they can, but there's more and more that they can find out about you. So your supervillain point from before is absolutely, absolutely right. So most of this is being done mostly for good. You know, mostly they use the databases for pharmaceutical research in a way that was really never possible before. But your dystopian point is something that's very much a concern that all of us should have. And the problem today is that this data, ownership of this data is absolutely up for grabs. Every new resource, like when they squish airplane seats together and that wedge becomes valuable, or when you go online and click streams become valuable, anytime there's new resource that emerges, ownership is up for grabs. And it's not just the Wild West and the old Wild West, it's the Wild West very much today. So the, the data companies are saying, we've worked hard, we've labored to create these databases. And that's one of the six basic stories. But that isn't the only story. We can push back and say, no, no, no. That data is so personal to us. It comes from our bodies. And that's another one of our basic six basic stories, you know, our bodies ourselves. And that's a really powerful basis for why we should control, why we should own that data and not the, the gene data companies. I, I love the, the concept that you presented of these six stories and that it really just comes down to these six stories. And um, on the other side, you also debunked some of the top ownership myths, such as first come, first served, or my home is my castle, or uh, possession is nine-tenths of the law. Can you tell us a little bit more about that, please? Well, each of these stories, part of why they're so powerful is that they do seem so natural. First come, first serve. That's how you line up for the good humor bar. Or possession is nine-tenths of the law. Well, that's just very deep. I'm holding on to it. And that goes back to actually our animal territoriality. That's actually an instinctive feature of humans. It's part of why one of the first words the kids learn is mine. It's so powerful. Um, and again, big companies know this and they design their ownership to take advantage of it. So for example, when you download a book onto your Kindle, 
you feel like it's mine. I, I clicked the buy now button, right? Possession is nine tenths of the law. But what Amazon and Apple realized is that that intuition that we have, it's so powerful, lets them earn an extra premium from every download because you don't really own that book online. There are so many cases where the big tech giants will delete a book or a movie oh, yes. right off of your device. And there's nothing you can do about it. And they don't have to pay you back for it. When you clicked buy now, you also agreed to a whole set of gobbledygook, pages mm. and pages that nobody reads. I'm a law professor. I teach this stuff. I can tell you, I have never read it. And if I ever did, I wouldn't be able to understand a word of it. It's written to be impenetrable. But what it means is when you click buy now, it's really a false promise. You own, what you own is different and less. Mm -hmm. And in our online lives, there's a big gap between what we feel we own and we actually own. And what that means is the tech companies actually get extra because we're paying for something we don't receive. There's actually a recent study on this. Almost 90% of people um, believe that when they click buy now, it's the same as buying the paper copy of a book or a CD of the movie. And it's just not true. It's not. And what you just said, I've, I've experienced it myself where just things that you download, things that disappear, digital songs, digital books. So um, what does that mean when the ownership of tangible things, what we're used to when we think of owning something is becoming uh, more and more uncommon? Uh, what does the future of ownership look like, like and how would it affect our lives? Well, I really, I, I don't have a crystal ball, so I can't tell you what it will look like. Um, and this, and much of it is actually pretty exciting. You know, probably, like the, the world of, I, I kind of enjoy Airbnb. I like staying in communities and seeing new places. Um, I like not having to own a car. I live in New York City. I like being able to Uber from here to there. But I do also, um, I can also imagine a world that would look sort of a, a little bit less um, appealing to me. So for instance, I, I really love to cook. So I have all these old cookbooks and they have stains on the pages from when I made the recipe 10, 20, even 30 years ago. And when I see those stains, it's so evocative to me. It's so important to me to have that sort of connection with something physical and tangible. And it feels so different when I just sort of idly swipe for a recipe online or you know, click Grub, Grubhub and have some food arrive. I feel like I lose something. I feel like we all lose something by that shift to an online world. I sort of like the idea of having fewer material possessions but I think that we have that some of those material possessions that we had is part of who we are. And there's a real spiritual and meaningful identity that comes from being connected with real stuff. And I don't want to live in a world where people lease their dog or you know rent their wedding ring. Um, I think there's a real connection that we have to tangible physical objects that's so meaningful and that we're at some risk of losing as everything becomes a stream of ones and zeros. I agree with you 100%, Michael. I also feel on the one side, it's of value to own less, but there's meaningful things to physically own them, have them, be connected with them. It connects us to our past. And without this connection to our past and meaningful moments, whether it's in our own life or our ancestors' lives, I think we may also lose track of the future in a sense. When I used to go to people's houses, when I was back in the days when I was dating, I was like, what books do you have on the shelf? Yeah. Like, what, what's your record collection? Like, it was really meaningful. You get a sense of who they were and, and people have a sense of who, who they were for themselves 
in the books that they had collected and the records that they had collected. And now no one does that. Now you have, it's a Kindle and it can all disappear. So how do you stay connected to sort of your own history? Mm-hmm. Um, and sort of a, a way that we know ourselves and know each other is, to, so, so you ask about the future of ownership. Um, it's very exciting. Um, and it's a little bit um, uh, puzzling, like how we're going to be able to create that piece of our own identity in a world where we stream everything and own nothing. Mm. Yes, and that's a very important thought that we should pursue further. Uh, the other thing we already talked about that's uh, very vital is the digital privacy and that it's obviously a major ownership issue of the 21st century. What are the other big issues with regards to ownership we're facing? Every every day there's a headline in the front page that is going to be answered by one of the big ownership stories that we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. You know, I can guarantee it yesterday, today, tomorrow, because people are always fighting over who gets what and why. But if you ask me what are the, like the absolutely biggest ownership issues going forward in the century, it seems to me in this country, the biggest issue is wealth inequality. And globally, the biggest issue is climate change. And those are really both at root ownership battles. Um, and there's real advances that we can make on either of them. Should we, do you want to talk about climate change or wealth inequality? Like, What um, do you think your listeners would be want to hear about first? I think both of them are crucial topics, but let's talk about uh, wealth inequality because first, because that is something that has really been in the, at the forefront of a lot of people's minds, especially going through the pandemic where this gap just seemed to widen even more. Well, 40% of wealth in this country already is inherited wealth. That's a staggering number. And um, $30 trillion, that's trillion with a T, is going to pass from well-off parents to their kids in the next 20 years. That's the largest wealth transfer ever in human history. It is staggering. Uh, and that enormous level of wealth concentration, it doesn't happen by magic. Doesn't, it's not something that's natural doesn't even happen through the market. It's a brilliantly engineered heist by a very small number of the wealthiest families in this country that have figured out how to, once the, not just to get rich, but how to keep that wealth in families, not just for one generation, but potentially forever. And there's a tool um, that they uh, have created in a handful of states. Um, South Dakota is actually the leading one of these, um, a tool called a dynasty trust that basically lets wealth stay in the family forever, free from many taxes and free from responsibility. Actually, I don't know if your listeners know this, but if you're, your super rich ones already do, not, not the wealthy ones, not the one percenters, but if you're a 0.01%, you already know that South Dakota is crushing Switzerland and the Cayman Islands as the world's leading money haven. And all of that happens through just a tiny number of tweaks in state ownership law. Because in America, ownership is mostly state law, not federal law, it's not in the constitution. It means a single deviant state like South Dakota can impoverish all of the rest of us. We all pay higher taxes in California, in Texas, in New York, in Florida. We all pay more because wealthy families in those states are hiding their money in South Dakota in trusts that will last potentially forever. So yeah. if one of their kids hits you with a Lamborghini, the trust shields them from responsibility. If you or I hit someone with our Toyota, um, we have to pay. Not only do we have to pay, but the person we injured can and should be able to come after us 
to garnish our wages until we make them whole, but not if you have your trust set up in South Dakota. Superhumanize. And I think it's, uh, it's really interesting that you highlight actually the effect of this because some people might say, well, so they're just doing what they're doing, let them do what they're doing. But uh, the, the fact is that it affects the other states as well and other taxpayers as well. So what can be done to correct this? Will it ever get corrected? Well, this is one that we absolutely can fix. This is just a, this is really um, a heist by this small number of family lawyers and family bankers. Um, and I think if more people knew about this, I think the level of outrage um, is, a, is, the, is the kind of outrage that actually generates um, political change. Because this isn't, you know, this isn't consistent with American progressivism to have this notion of outrageous wealth concentration, but it also isn't at all consistent with American conservatism. I know a, a, a theory, a philosophy based on individual freedom and individual responsibility. This is neither of those things. This is a form of aristocracy that America's founders, progressive and conservative, would despise. And they actually set up America um, as a country precisely to oppose um, uh, to reject the sort of aristocratic notion of ancient England. And what we've done today in places like South Dakota is recreate a form of aristocracy that even South Dakotans don't realize has happened. One state one state representative there recently said, there aren't a hundred people in the state who realize what these new laws have done because they don't affect South Dakota. None of the money helps South Dakota. Not one school gets a book or not one mile of road gets paved in South Dakota because of all this money that's living there. It's only a way to basically bankrupt states like Texas and Florida and, and so, New York. And so for people who would like to look further into this, you already mentioned uh, the, uh, the term dynasty trust. What should they look up or get informed about? Well, it's the sort of thing where you can be involved with your um, congressperson or your legislator and say, listen, this is something where we think there should be a federal law. This is one where it's very hard. Unless people in South Dakota are listening, and there aren't so many of those. Um, they are able, because of how, how the rules of ownership in America work, they're able to bankrupt the rest of us. But we can fix this at the federal level. So it means having a political party that represents you, that cares about uh, undoing some of this inequality. I think this, is, this inequality really is a issue that transcends both liberals and conservatives, because all of us on, on either side of the spectrum are harmed. The only people who are benefiting are this very small set of the aristocratic rich, not just the rich, but the aristocratic uh, dynasties that are being set up in this in this country. Mm, yes, and I, I think it's uh, it's important, and I'm also glad that you're uh, building the bridge between the liberals and conservatives and saying that this is something that concerns us all, no matter where we see ourselves on the political spectrum. Absolutely. And talking about climate change, um, and if we look at ownership as a cutting-edge engineering technology, you've described it as such also in the book and saying that climate change is an ownership issue. How is climate change an ownership issue and how can we use ownership to save the planet? Well, in many parts of the world, it's if you're a poor forest dweller, say in the Amazon, it makes way more sense for you to chop the tree down because if you chop the tree down, you get the value of the tree or the land that gets um, it's exposed. And keeping the tree standing, having to protect the planet, well, that's worth zero to you. Maybe attached to your land, but the value of the 
eco services that that tree provides being the lungs for our planet, you can't capture any of that. You can't feed your family with that. So the leading uh, sort of cutting edge uh, programs to save places like the Amazon, but also in this country, all involve using the attachment story, the same story we started with, with the button on the airplane seat. So we treat farmers, we treat forest dwellers as if the lung clearing power of the trees were attached to their land. We make it possible to pay them to have the tree be standing, to attach those ecoservices to their land. So suddenly in many parts of the world now, trees are worth more standing than they are chopped down because we've attached the environmental value of the tree to individual forest dwellers, landowners all over the, all over the world. And can you explain to us a little bit more about how, where, for example, does the money come from that then enables this? Well, uh, relatively little from this country, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. But um, uh, we've had versions of um, basically cap and trade and ecosystem um, tra uh, uh, transferable um, emissions permits. Uh, for example, Norway, to give you one example, they made a lot of money from oil. And they're very aware of the terrible environmental consequences from all that oil that's being burned. So they actually have created programs in, in, in Norway uh, to pay farmers in Africa and in Latin America and parts of the world where there are still trees not to cut them down. So they take some of what they've earned from the oil and they transfer it over uh, to make payments for um, uh, forest dwellers. And those kinds of systems where companies that pollute then pay money to offset those pollutions. So, you know, many of your listeners probably uh, think about this when they fly in an airplane. Like you can nowadays, you can buy an offset when you fly, where um, you pay a little extra and that money gets offset. Well, where does it go? Where it goes is to basically farmers who don't chop trees down or use better farming practices that are more ecologically sensitive. So that's, that transfer is all based on using one of these six ownership stories, the attachment story, attaching the value of those ecoservices to the farmers and, and forest dwellers land. Mm. You, you also say that the assertion that owning nothing would reduce consumption uh, is not necessarily true. Please explain that. Well, one, one sort of techno-optimistic vision of our future is that we'll own nothing. We'll just stream everything. Um, and uh, that isn't really the way it will work. So if you don't own a car and you just stream car services, doesn't mean that cars aren't owned. It just, just means that you don't own a car. And that's going to be the same, the same for uh, books. So if you don't, uh, um, if you stream a book uh, and don't own it, it doesn't mean that books aren't owned. It means that there's a handful of very large companies that own it. So if I have a physical copy of the book, I can burn it. If I'm in protest, I can cut it up to make a collage. I can lend it to somebody. I can resell it. None of those things are really true when you stream a book. Uh, and what it means is uh, they can actually delete the book from your control. So they can take, they, they can't come into your house and take a book away, but in a world where we're, it's where we only stream, where it's all ones and zeros, we're actually very much more at the mercy of the techno giants that actually will still be the owners. It's not a world where there's no ownership. It's a world of hyper-concentrated ownership where somebody else is making the decisions and not you. Yes. And I found your book so enlightening and so relevant and eye-opening. I've already um, uh, told friends about it. And um, at this point, while we're talking, it's not published yet. The time the podcast is published, it will be out. Mine so exciting. Yes. Yeah. Where did I put my copy? 
And oh. I'm, I'm so privileged to have gotten a, a, a um, before. So mine, how the hidden rules of ownership control our lives. It's a must read. And Michael, there's one question I ask. Can, can you see it? Oh, yes, I can see it. It's a beautiful cover. I'm so excited. I got the pie. <laughs> I like making pie. It's so much fun. It's excellent. Yeah, I really, really recommend the read um, to anyone who wants to know how this world works. And like you say, be better advocates for ourselves, for our families, for the community, for the greater, better good. And Michael, there is a question I ask each guest uh, who comes on the Superhumanized podcast. And if you uh, have any practices that have been uh, beneficial to you mentally, spiritually, physically, and if you would be open to sharing them with us. What a great question. I wish every podcast ended with that question. So one place for me that's been a really important um, piece of that has been a place called Esalen up in Big Sur. So I, that's that's for me a real uh, retreat for uh, recharging. Um, so I try to find places like that in my life where there's a chance to sort of withdraw and take some time and then sort of think about like what's important and what do I do next? Excellent. Yeah, I've heard of it. I haven't been there yet, but it's on top of my list. And people who want to reach out to you, where can they best find you? Well, that's great. We have we have a website that has a lot of free content on it. It's called mindthebook.com. Mind the book. We have we persuaded our publishers to do a free uh, ebook on there, which is called The False Promise of the Buy Now Button. We felt that piece of our conversation today was so important that it should be available to all your listeners for free. So that that ebook is available at mindthebook.com. We have short videos. We have a lot of fun material. Um, so go and check it out. Excellent. I'll make sure to put it also in the show notes. Michael, it's been a great pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you for all these insights and for um, coming up with this relevant and really interesting book. Ariana, thank you so much. It's really been great to be on your show. All the best. Superhumanize. Accelerated Evolution.